Hey y'all, it's Danielle. And Coop and I are so excited that you've made it back to Ain't No Free Lunch for the sixth week, the sixth episode. We're on a roll. This week, we are super excited to basically look at all of the past happenings of the past week. It's been a hot button couple of days from everything from Jesse Williams to uh, another officer in Baltimore walking free in the Freddie Gray case to my very exciting experience on the inside of the Supreme Court. What we'll mostly be talking about today is hashtag Becky with the bad grades. UT versus Fisher decision. The deciding affirmative action was recently handed down by the Supreme Court of the United States. If you like what you hear, review and rate on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud. We're everywhere. All right, y'all. Let's eat. <laughs> we love. <laughs> so it was a big week in the news last week. Huge week, actually. It was kind of out of control. Yeah. So uh, another officer in the, in the Freddie Gray case was found not guilty. Like the main officer. Right. So... Like I said before, it seems like nobody killed Freddie Gray. What do you mean? That he apparently must have killed himself. Listen. <laughs> According to the justice system, nobody killed Freddie Gray. I, I'm just, I'm waiting for someone to, I mean, uh, who else would have killed him? Justice isn't found in a verdict. Well, what's, where are we looking for justice then? In the I, process. Okay. Perhaps. So who killed Freddie Gray? Question mark, question mark. <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things where... And we won't delve into this too much. Not too deeply, because clearly we would end up in an argument. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, in all these other cases around the country, for example, the George Zimmerman case, I'm going to preface this by saying I hate being right, but I told you also. What? I told you that that these officers be found not guilty. No, yeah, we did. Depraved murder, like that's like pretty much premeditated. Yes, it's a tragedy. Freddie Gray is dead. Rest in power. However, according to the city of Baltimore, nobody killed him. According to our criminal justice system, the issue here is not in this specific case. I think we should really look at the process. And so I challenge our listeners to go look at the their state and find out if they have the law enforcement officers bill of rights, mm. which essentially gives people 10 days to corroborate their story of their law enforcement officer before they ever have to speak to investigators. Well, everyone, I'm going to go do this, actually. Virginia does have it. Oh, Virginia has it? Well, then I'll have to go look it up. And Mayor Rawlins Blake, who got a lot of flack for, you know, calling the protesters looters and thugs and criminals. Right. She was like, she was on the front lines prior to this happening, trying to eradicate the law enforcement officer's Bill of Rights in Maryland. So, you know, just as much as we, you know, kind of shoot people when they're wrong. We also need to bring attention to it when they're doing something positive. But also... um, Bay was in the news. (laughs) Who is Bay? You know, Bay changes quite often. But Jesse Williams gave a phenomenal speech. I'm pretty sure it's gotten viral. I noticed that his Instagram followers shot up. I just want to shout everyone out. Were you following him before? Of course I was following him before. Okay. Oh, I know who Jesse Williams was. He's I ma- knew. He's married, by the way. I know, and I love who he's married to. Like, so is that a couple crush for you? Oh, yeah, totally a couple crush. Even though she's like not on social media, trust me, I looked. 
I think that they are just magical together. But anyway, Jesse was on the BET Awards. He made this acceptance speech because he won the Humanitarian Award. That was phenomenal. We'll let y'all listen to parts of it here. It's kind of basic mathematics. The more we learn about who we are and how we got here, the more we will mobilize. Now, this is also in particular for the black women in particular who have spent their lifetimes dedicated to nurturing everyone before themselves. We can and will do better for you. Now, what we've been doing is looking at the data and we know that police somehow manage to de-escalate, disarm, and not kill white people every day. So what's gonna happen is we are gonna have equal rights and justice in our own country or we will restructure their function and ours. Yesterday would have been young Tamir Rice's 14th birthday. So I don't wanna hear any more about how far we've come when paid public servants can pull a drive-by on a 12-year-old playing alone in a park in broad daylight, killing him on television and then going home to make a sandwich. Tell Rakia Boyd how it's so much better to live in 2012 than it is to live in 1612 or 1712. Tell that to Eric Garner, tell that to Sandra Bland, tell that to Dorian Hunt. Now the thing is though, all of us in here getting money, that alone isn't gonna stop this. Dedicating our lives to getting money just to give it right back, for someone's brand on our body, when we spent centuries praying with brands on our bodies, and now we pray to get paid for brands on our body. There has been no war that we have not fought and died on the front lines of. There has been no job we haven't done. There's no tax they haven't levied against us, and we've paid all of them. But freedom is somehow always conditional here. You're free, they keep telling us. But she, she, she would have been alive if she hadn't acted so free. Freedom is always coming in the hereafter. But you know what, though? The hereafter is a hustle. We want it now. And let's get, let's get a couple things straight. Just a little side note. The burden of the brutalized is not to comfort the bystander. That's not our job. All right, stop with all that. If you have a critique for the resistance, for our resistance, then you better have an established record of critique of our oppression. If you have no interest, if you have no interest in equal rights for black people, then do not make suggestions to those who do. Sit down. We've been floating this country on credit for centuries, yo. And we're done watching and waiting while this invention called whiteness uses and abuses us, burying black people out of sight and out of mind while extracting our culture, our dollars, our entertainment like oil, black gold, ghettoizing and demeaning our creations, then stealing them, gentrifying our genius, and then trying us on like costumes before discarding our bodies like rinds of strange fruit. The thing is, though, the thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. So I think the most quoted part of his of his speech was, wasn't even my favorite. So it was the very last line when he said, just because we are magic doesn't mean that we aren't real. I mean, that's great and it's true and it may, you know, hashtag black girl magic and all that. But my favorite quote was actually when he said, if you have a critique for our resistance, then you'd better have an established record of critique of our oppression. And that just was like, it's everything that I've been saying from the very beginning. Like if you you can't, I'm not here for you critiquing people who are trying to move their way out of oppression if you're not a critiquing the people who are pressing them in the first place. So I, I had a traumatic event on Sunday as well. Mm-hmm. I was pulled over by a police officer just to be checked. And I kind of put that account on What do you mean just media. to be checked? Uh, that's what the police officer said. He was just checking. And on... then to- 
he said, oh, I'm just checking and uh, just pay more attention next time. To what? That's the question I want to know. Questions that need answers. Yeah. So perhaps we can talk about that a little bit further in the future. But I put that account, that accord on social media. And so mm. some of my. Oh, I saw it. Some people from high school, they said, oh, the police officer became the victim in that scenario. And uh, my cousin actually put the Jesse Williams quote up there. Right. Like on my status. But then he deleted it. He should have <laughs> kept it. It's so true. If you haven't been critiquing our oppression, you cannot critique when we want to remove ourselves from that situation. Like, yes, there are some people that I don't always agree with. But when I bring my critique, it comes along with, yes, I understand that this is happening to you. And yes, people make it seem like we're making it all up. Yeah. It's not made up. So, speaking otherwise, of justice, uh, you know, speaking of justice, someone was at the Supreme Court. I was. So I got into this really amazing institute. It's called the Supreme Court Summer Institute for Teachers, and I don't Kudos. think I really thanks. I don't think I really knew what I was getting myself into when I originally applied. I didn't think it would be as epic as it was. There were thirty teachers from all over the United States part of the street law program and we took an in-depth look at the supreme court but not only did we take a look at it i got to sit inside of the supreme court on decision day on decision day on the final decision day of the year where they kind of hold on to some of their most important or the ones that they struggled with deciding their decisions from oral arguments and I got to watch Whole Woman's Health. Where what was that? Whole Woman's Health is basically a, a lawsuit that was brought before the Supreme Court. It's against the state of Texas and other states that have these laws that place undue burden as decided by the court when I was there uh, this past Monday. Undue burden on women who are trying to seek abortions. They were basically saying that if you have a clinic that there are abortions performed in, you need to make sure that it meets the requirements of surgical centers that the doctors that offer abortions need to have admitting privileges and originally I didn't think there was anything wrong with it but then the more you dig into it they were making it seem like abortion centers need to be have the regulations of surgical care centers because Everyone has that vision of like a woman who has an abortion sitting up in the stirrups. Actually, 90% of abortions are performed through a pill. Actually, you are less likely to have a complication from an abortion than you are from a colonoscopy. Oh, say that one more time. You are more likely to suffer complications from a colonoscopy than than an abortion. So basically you're saying that this entire argument is really moot. It's tomfoolery. And the courts agreed with me and it was amazing. I got to sit there and it was great to see all of the justices because they were like real people. Like Justice Alito kept rocking back and forth in his chair. Justice Thomas had his hands in his hair. Was like, oh, they were over it. It was like the last day of school for teachers and how I know I'm over it. They were truly over it. I got to hear three different cases. I got to listen to Bob McDonald get to walk. And are, are you surprised? No, I wasn't surprised are at all. Are you disappointed? Mm, when I listened to Justice Roberts give his the give that the was majority, unanimous. That decision. was yeah, that was a unanimous decision. It made sense. I understand that it was based on a technicality, and technically they didn't even rule in McDonald's favor. They sent it back down to the lower court for a retrial, and it depends on whether or not they want to use the Virginia taxpayers' dollars to really stick it to them. I mean, governors have did much, much more egregious things. terrible things. And they called, you know, his actions tawdry and distasteful, but, I mean, at the end of the day, he's he's about to be free. It's unethical. 
that's inappropriate. But oh, yeah. should he do jail time for it? That's questionable. But the highlight of the of the entire thing was I got to meet Justice Elena Kagan. Asked her a question to which she responded, and I had to keep my energy on the inside. I was so excited. And then, what did you ask her? How does she see herself fulfilling her legacy? What does she want her legacy to be? And she said that she it was too soon. She didn't know what she wanted her legacy to be. And over time, she would figure it out. And she just hopes that people remember her based on the fairness of her decisions. I also got to meet the wife of Thurgood Marshall. Oh, turn up. Yeah. Did you tell her you know me? No. Oh. <laughs> Everything is not about you. I was just asking, you know, Farmville, Prince Edward. Right, right, you know, right. Brown v. Board. Mm. So how was she? She was so sweet. And like in the middle of taking pictures, she just walked off and was like, I need more wine. <laughs> <laughs> and she was so nice and I and I talked to her for a while and I told her that Justice Marshall was my father's favorite justice and she was like, "Oh, mine too." Surprise, surprise. <laughs> So, speaking of the Supreme Court. Right. Probably the biggest case this this term was about Abigail Fisher and her claim that she was not admitted to the University of Texas almost 10 years ago solely based on her race. And the Supreme Court said enough is enough. Basically, affirmed affirmative action. So, what is affirmative action? First of all, affirmative action was never about diversity. Uh-oh. It, Affirmative action is about equity, and at its core, it suggests that we as Americans are not intrinsically inclined to do the right thing by offering equal opportunities and we all to know. all including people of color, women, the disabled. And we all know LGBTQ that equal community. doesn't mean fair. Fair doesn't always mean equal, except some people don't understand that. So I found a, I found, I did find a study about this though. It said the National Asian and Pacific American Legal Consortium reports that although white men make up only 48% of the college-educated workforce, they hold over 90% of the top jobs in the news media, 96% of CEO positions, 86% of law firm partnerships, and 85% of tenured college faculty positions. So in water is wet news. Water isn't wet, actually. Water is so wet. Like, I knew we, I mean, I couldn't have given you the exact percentages, but it's just, that's what institutional racism is. You know that that's what that's happening. Also, I find it funny that that's a study that comes from the National Asian and Pacific American Legal Consortium, because I have all sorts of feelings right now about the fact that there is a coalition of over 100 Asian American groups that are filing a civil rights complaint against some major Ivy League schools right now. I think they're going up against Dartmouth, Yale, and Brown University, similar to one that was filed against Harvard. And they were really hoping, excuse me, not they, I can't speak for all of them, but the the, the coalitions were hoping that actually UT versus Fisher swung in Abigail Fisher's and swung her way because they feel like they are being hurt by race-based admission into Ivy League schools. Mm, I have a lot of feelings about that. I I don't think that the are, the Ivy Leagues are saying that they're not being discriminated against. When you look at like the percentage of Asian Americans in the United States, it's, it's around 5%. And then some of these schools have Asian American populations of like 16.1%, you know, 
15%. So almost triple the amount, uh, triple their population in present day society. So I don't know, I, I'm here for all sister movements, but I'm not here for sister movements that are going to win at our expense. So the first person that we ever heard use the term affirmative action was President Kennedy right? via an executive order. Mm-hmm. Um, however, affirmative action as we now know it was established by his successor, President Lyndon Baines Johnson right? Who in 1965. Who, who swung us from Republicans to Democrats and Democrats to Republicans. That's when you have the major shift mm-hmm. in all the parties. Yeah. So... First of all, it's kind of ironic that this was all brought about because of an executive order, actually. Affirmative action as we know it. Because one thing that we didn't talk about in the introduction was the immigration reform plan by President Obama's right. executive order. That was a 4-4 split. Yeah. And so, you know, we hear a lot about executive orders should not supersede the law. But we kind of saw this happen with affirmative action. So is that part of the resistance to it or what do you think i don't even think most people know one what affirmative action is two who it benefits or three how it came about i feel like if i were to walk into a donald trump rally right now and ask people hey how was affirmative action instituted in the united states of america not one person now, would be able to tell me that it came through an now, executive that, order. That's a large stereotype and generalization. No, there. I'm not even talking about Donald Trump like people. I'm saying like people in general don't know. But how many people would know that at a Clinton rally? No one. That's what I'm saying. Oh. No one. I said Donald Trump because there would be the people who would be most against affirmative action. Something I learned when researching is affirmative action, even though it wasn't really implemented until 1965 we did have some some of these types of programs really right after the civil war basically it says that and i'll quote this was a positive legal action to redress discrimination's impact rather than simply ending discrimination and that it has been around since the civil war during reconstruction the period immediately after the civil war the constitution was amended and other federal initiatives such as the creation of the freedmen's bureau were undertaken to establish equal opportunity for the former slaves these initiatives were at least modestly successful bringing about african-american participation in elections for the first time like i said before i really like what they call it in the united kingdom positive discrimination because it's something that's supposed to be leveling the playing field I think a lot of people don't understand or they ignore or they refuse to believe that that things aren't equal. They see the fact that we can all go into the same restrooms and use the same water fountains. And then they're like, oh, what problems do people of color face in the United States? We don't see any problems. But what about that quote that President Johnson gave? And we know that President Johnson, there are definitely some issues with him. Oh, personally. yeah. But he isn't he your favorite president? I don't have a favorite president, to be fairly honest, but Johnson definitely did say that you do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race, and then say you are free to compete with all the others and still just believe you have been completely fair. That's what people like, Becky with the bad grades, let me, have you read this quote? (laughs) Has anyone told you about the history of systematic oppression, discrimination, Like the list goes on and on against people of color. Like, do you or do you just choose to ignore it and want to say, oh, I didn't get into the school because of black and Latinos? 
Yeah, so basically, affirmative action was, if I'm understanding correctly, this was a conscious decision or a conscious attempt to address real institutional damage done to communities of color and women that kept them out of America's classrooms and workplaces. Yeah, because it was owed. So basically, LBJ was saying that the proverbial equal playing field was non-existent it's not (laughs) like that's the whole point of affirmative action is that you have people who've been systematically oppressed discriminated against torn down it is very difficult to just release them and say or not even release them because i know systematic oppression still exists i know racism still exists so these are constant battles that you you have to go through in order to get where you want to be and just saying that oh, no, you can go to the same bathroom as me. Oh, now you can apply to the same colleges that I can? Oh, that means we're equal. You don't, you're fine. You're fine. There's no residue from generational oppression. Nah, you're good. You know, it's kind of one of the best examples I've ever heard of institutional racism in this country was a monopoly example okay and so i was in this in this like seminar and they said oh we have to have affirmative action here and they said imagine everyone else going around the monopoly board six or seven times buying up all the property and everything oh and then someone giving you the dice and say oh we equal now because you can play at first i couldn't play but now i can play But But you just racked up on some change. Yeah. And so everywhere I go, I'm behind. Right. I land on your property. Right. Like it, it's totally not fair. Yeah. (laughs) I go to jail. No pun intended. Right. But like, I don't know. It's just people refuse to see that there are, there's residue from these issues because then I feel like they know that they were required to act. And if you, they realize that they require they are required to act and they choose not to act, then they know they're part of the system too. But is this reverse racism? Reverse racism doesn't exist. <clears throat> oh, what do you mean? <laughs> okay, so la- actually last night I was on this DC online radio show, Group Chat Radio, and one of the hosts, Chatty Patty, she basically said reverse Shout racism. Yes, yeah, so she said reverse racism racism would actually just be everyone being really nice all the time really (laughs) so racism is terrible right it's you are acting on prejudices that you have towards certain people based on their color and they're always negative interactions so to reverse that would just be to be really nice to everyone not only that when you are systematically oppressed the definition of racism as a system says that you can't really oppress your oppressor you know one thing that i always find very very interesting about the whole affirmative action conversation is that people and we know the first bush president hw bush right he really brought up this term about a quota system, but they always seem to think of it as about like a black and white thing. Women are always excluded from these conversations about affirmative action. You know, even Abigail Fisher. Which women? Let's back up. Okay, because you know people can be women and of color at the same time. Like me. Oh, okay. I'm just... Making sure we're all so on the same page. So it's like page. a double negative for you. Yeah. Oh. I think of it as a double positive, but. <laughs> but in, 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 in some... terms of 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 
who has the most power, yes, it would be a double negative. So I think it's very, very important that we talk about or that we keep in mind, we're mindful of the fact that affirmative action isn't just about people of color. It's also about women. And, you know, even Abigail Fisher, her argument. Which women, Coop. Because I am a person of color and a woman. Which women are you talking about? You just can't say women. Let me say it for you. It's about white women. That's what you want to say? It's not just about people of color. It's also about white women. I'm helping you out. So give us a little history about... (laughs) Give us a little history about uh, the Supreme Court and affirmative action. Okay, Basically, here's what you need to understand. The Supreme Court has set precedent. Like the Supreme Court, the way that it operates, it not only operates on the basis of the Constitution, but it also bases itself on its previous rulings or precedent. And it set a precedent in Regents of the University of California case in 1978 that basically racial quotas are not permitted in admissions processes and that the assigning people of color extra admissions points as also deciding in another case that was Gratz v. Bollinger in 2003 are not permitted. So one, you can't say, hey, we want 16 black people to come to our school this year. That is a racial quota. It is not allowed. Personally, I am a fan of not having racial quotas because then when you filled your quota, you don't you stop looking for us. You stop checking for us. So it's like 16. That's the cap. Never anymore. We can have less, but no more. Then, on the other hand, a lot of people who misunderstand affirmative action, they think that like, oh, if you're black, then you get extra points. Points? Points? What? No, that's illegal. They're not permitted. But what we have learned from the history of the Supreme Court, from other cases, especially established by Grutter v. Bollinger in 2003, which was the same year as Gratz v. Bollinger, that some sorts of racial um, classifications are permitted when the university is going to gain important educational benefits by creating a student a diverse student body you can't assign points there are no numerical values but if the university can prove that the educational benefits of the entire school will be improved by having students who are diverse then they are permitted to use that in their admissions policies so basically you have to have a well designed system classification has to be very tailored so how did all of this play out? Like, what was Abigail Fisher's argument? So, you guys know that I'm an eighth grade civics and economics teacher. So, some of my students actually did a podcast on UT versus Fisher this year. And I'm going to go ahead and shout them out. Ulisa, Sharon, Brittany, and Isaiah. That's the same Isaiah I, I shouted out to <laughs> two episodes ago. They did a phenomenal podcast on this. So I'm going to let you guys listen to what their ideas were that they came up with. They give you a little bit of background and they kind of tell you how they feel about the entire situation. I'm Sharon. I'm Brittany. I'm Ulisa. I'm Isaiah. Today our topic will be about the case of Abigail Fisher versus the University of Texas. In this case, Abigail Fisher is suing the University of Texas because she claimed she was discriminated against since she wasn't allowed admission into the school because of her race. See, I don't even know all the facts yet, so I'm trying to hold my tongue, but I can already see that I'm about to tell Abby to have a seat. I'll 
Also in this case, she's working to abolish affirmative action in the University of Texas so people could only be admitted by how good their grades are. Abigail Fisher is a white female. She's had a lot of advantages in her childhood. Her economic status like, is higher than the minority groups. And affirmative action is what helps minority groups. Helps minority groups seek opportunities and job opportunities. She wants to get into the University of Texas since both her father and sister were in there. But what she doesn't know is that affirmative action actually helps her case because she is a female. Affirmative action actually works to help the female population and increase their chances of getting into college and having the same job benefits as male. Also minority groups, it helps with minority groups. Yeah, well pretty much affirmative action improves the education and job opportunities of members of groups that have been discriminated against in the past because of their race, sex, and etc. So like, such as like females or like minority groups. What Abigail Fisher is trying to do, she's doing something for short term. She's trying to abolish affirmative action only because she feels like it's not working in her favor. But in reality, affirmative action helps make the country more colorful and fill us with a diversity of new minds. She's also just being a little, a little like, stubborn and vengeful. Yeah, because she didn't get accepted and but she in has actuality, family. But in actuality, people who had lower scores than her were actually 42 white people. And then afterwards, who were admitted, no, 42 people, 42 white people that had scores lower than her who were admitted were 42 white people, and then like five were just minorities. Why isn't she arguing about those 42 white people? Like, why is she saying like, oh, why were they admitted? Why she's only pointing at just a minority? I feel like she's using affirmative action as an excuse because even if affirmative action wasn't a rule, wasn't, wasn't a factor in admission. She would have still not gone into a school because she didn't have the grades needed to get in the school. She was competing against against people who had like you know good scores. Like the the school didn't just want like people who had like great not test scores, testing scores, like you know extra curricular activities. They wanted to like people who did beyond that. Take in mind this is her second time appealing her case, and in True. both cases she has put affirmative action as the blame of her not getting in. And if uh, affirmative action wouldn't be a factor in college, colleges, ch college campuses wouldn't be as diverse. There wouldn't be as much culture. It would just be like one group of selected people in each college. But um, they did um, do something like, I feel like, I think it was 10 out of the top 10 um, um, universities slash colleges in the country. Seven out of them, like, they have had abolished, like, they all had abolished. Yeah, you know, California has already abolished it. Yeah, affirmative action, but like, only seven of them like still like were able to preserve like you know like the amount of minorities in their school gender and things like that but like what about the others like we can't say it's the same thing for um university of texas and at first also they had noticed that there was like a steep a really steep decline in minority groups but then it slowly went back up also when there's not enough diversity in a school lots of people get discriminated against in cases such as when minorities were getting dropped Bleach, bleach balloons bleach from the University of Texas, and this was from the. So I feel like the University of Texas does need diversity, very needed. And then also, the, um, supposedly there was another incident in the fall of 2012 in which a certain like group of students had a fiesta party in which like certain students had um, shirts that said that had labeled illegal and then border patrol, which is very like you know discriminatory. Also, with the um, influx of like a lot of diverse populations going in and out of America, the country is increasingly becoming more diverse 
and then like there's only a small like you know fraction that don't need help at all so like that's pretty much unfair if, if all of them get in and then like this like only a little bit of minorities get in too and pretty much they're gonna be with the ones who are like well off mm-hmm. in reality money isn't really the thing that hinders minority groups it's the level of acceptance that they have when applying to mostly anything in this country that hinders them from doing anything higher than their own set minority group and also like discrimination in this country like the civil rights movement and things yeah. like that like but for example like slavery like people like people of color were always like put down no matter what even if you weren't white you were always put down especially like if you were a white male you were never like you were like upheld you were on, put on a pedestal and like white people have a lot of advantages white men no, no white, white people men. No, white people in general have a lot of advantages. I know, more like, than compared to minority groups, they have economic advantages. Like they have more educational systems that help them. Therefore, because of the past, because in the past they had that, and then like they still have it. But then us, like we're still just we're like years behind them. So Mostly, America is based on a history-based level of acceptance. So if you were important back then, you were still considered important, important back now. here. So you know, let's give African Americans. Let's give African Americans. No, African Americans. Let's put them as an example. African Americans behold as slaves. You see, you put a white man next to an African American man, you automatically think the white person is more successful, even though the black person, the African American man, might be in a suit and tie, and the white person might be in just casual clothes. You automatically think they come from a wealthier family, more acceptable. True, true. And you think the black person, to get the clothes that he has, he has to work harder. Systematic oppression, like. Even back then, like, they still, like, discriminated against us and things like that. Like, it's slowly, like, it's, like, like, since when did they, like, abolish slavery? Like, 100 years ago? So, basically, I feel that, because of what we were talking about, affirmative action is needed. And it really is needed because... Overall, we believe that affirmative action is needed and that Abigail Fisher... Is putting affirmative action as an excuse to get into the University of Texas. Or I to feel abolish like Abigail Fisher is using ex- affirmative action in a negative way when affirmative action really is there to keep a mi- the minority group at a higher standard and actually giving them chances that, that white people usually have. So pretty much in her case, she's just trying to abolish affirmative action because she wasn't accepted into the university, even though she wasn't going to be accepted on grades alone anyways. Thank you for listening to our thank podcast. You for your, thank you for your time. We really do appreciate you In the comments below, tell podcast. us what you think about this topic. Thank you. Subscribe. You know, we're here on Mondays. <laughs> and So... During the argument for Abigail Fisher... Can we just pause and focus on how basic she is? Have a seat, man. <laughs> can, we just, can we just pause and just have a moment of silence for mediocrity? <laughs> so, basically, you're saying that Abigail Fisher had bad grades? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying she had bad grades. I said her grades weren't phenomenal. I mean, if you're going to come at the neck of affirmative action, you need to be So basically you're saying on they, it. they should have a, a stronger plaintiff. Yeah. The thing about it is a lot of people don't understand. What, they, what a lot of people don't understand is that Abby, she didn't actually... Also, this is also hashtag stay mad Abby along with hashtag Becky with bad grades. She actually didn't pay for this. She was sought out as the plaintiff. She was funded by or bankrolled by the Project on Fair Representation, 
which is basically funded by a 60-year-old former stockbroker named Edward Blum, who sought Fisher out, persuaded her to file the suit, found her someone that was going to be able to try it, and then secured all of these thousands of dollars to make sure the case would get to the actual but highest level. Didn't you do it both times? Because this wasn't her first time in Supreme Oh, no. Court. So she... Abby had bad grades. This She would have came into college at the same time that I did. So she applied in 2008. I was also... No, I applied in 2007. We got our admissions in 2008. So we would have gone into college at the same time. So she initially filed suit almost immediately after she got her denial. Or not immediately afterwards, but it was pretty quickly thereafter. She just decided, oh, the reason I didn't get in was because, you know, all of those black kids that got in over me. But let's give a little background about okay. that. There were 47 students that were admitted to University of Texas at Austin, which is the flagship 47 over her. Well, I'm going to get to that. Okay, I was just making sure. Just so sure. University of Texas is the flagship university in the state of Texas. University of Texas at Austin. At Austin, there were 47 students that were admitted that year that had grades that were lower than Abby Fisher. Right. 47. That were chosen over her, technically. And so... Only 47. Some media outlets that we won't name basically said, oh, you know, the best should always get in. And that she was denied admission because these 47 students of color... Fox News, we're looking at you. These 47 students of color were admitted solely based on their race. Which is so dumb. They didn't even understand the process. Like, let's backtrack. How many people of color were actually admitted over Abigail Fisher? Five. Five out of the 47. Those were four Latinos and one white person were, I mean, excuse me, four Latinos and one black person was admitted over her. The other 42 were white. She saw no problem with whatever cer- special circumstances that they got in on off of. No yeah. problem. But it, she had to come for the five. The five. There were five people who took her, well, quote unquote, took her spot. Like, it wasn't your birthright, Shaw. Like, it's not that deep. Yeah, she said she was legacy and they took her spot. But the thing is. She was legacy. But well, she don't see no problem with legacy. But n- not to mention. I see a problem with legacy. Th- there are three ways that you can get into the University of Texas. Right. So way number one, if you're top 10% of your high school graduating class. Right. It, under Texas law, 75% of the freshman class of UT at Austin are have to be admitted through their top 10% program. In 2008, 92% of them came from that top 10. So in North Carolina, 82% have to be admitted. And the freshman class have to be North Carolina residents. In Virginia, we just do what we want. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's why UVA is ranked a little bit higher than like University of Texas. But never mind. <laughs> um, so that that's way number one you get admitted. You're in the top 10% of your graduating class. You're automatically admitted. Okay. So Abigail wasn't. No, she was not in the top 10% because looking at her score, she had a 3.59 GPA and an 1180 on her SAT. Let's talk about average. So average Abby. Can we start the hashtag? I'm gonna tweet it. So way number two that you can be admitted to UT is you know you're competing with the top students from all over the country, and so and that year that other eight percent. Okay. Of course, 
Miss Fisher was not uh, admitted that manner. And so then they have a small number of students, which in this year was 47. And they have, they create a formula. It's not points, but. Yeah, it's not points based. I don't know what, I'm, I'm interested in what that means. Like it's not numerical. But, but they take a lot of things into account. And race is one of the things. And so essentially that's what Abby was saying, that she was discriminated upon because her grades were better, but she didn't take into account any of the other things for this formula. Well, the thing about it for this formula is that she didn't understand is that there were seven components. So it's a factor of a factor. So you have all of these different things. So you have a personal achievement score that you get from your two essays and your six additional factors like leadership, potential, extracurricular activities, and then special circumstances. Race is one of seven components of special circumstances special circumstances is one component of six additional factors so race actually when you break it down is such a minute part of your value that you're given that it doesn't even make sense and then what she failed to realize is that after you get that that non-numerical score or whatever it is they give it to the admissions officers without the name and without the race. So then the admissions officers look at it as a holistic thing and they admit people based on that. The admissions officers don't even know what race they're admitting when they use that score. But, but now this is what I found very, very interesting. University of Texas, didn't they say that even if she had been given an affirmative, for lack of better words, because I don't want to say points, even if, if she was given some credit for being black. She still wouldn't have got in. Back you with the bad grades. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, they, the a university official was quoting as saying that, like, even if Abigail Fisher had been black, she still wouldn't have got in. She still was too mediocre. <laughs> so what is this really about then? You know, was she just trying to become, like, the conservative speaking point or you know was she being used to try to overturn affirmative action you know what what was her goal what was her end game here okay so i think we should let abby speak for herself here there were people in my class with lower grades who weren't in all the activities i was in who were being accepted into ut and the only other difference between us was the color of our skin i was taught from the time i was a little girl that any kind of discrimination was wrong and for an institution of higher learning to act this way makes no sense to me. What kind of example does this set for others? Basically, <clears throat> Abby, you mad. <laughs> That's what it is, and you just gonna have to stay mad. Like, you got your degree from Louisiana State University. Congratulations. You have on that. a job that pays well. I don't understand how you can. You're, you're mad, and that's all it is. What's basically been argued and why this has been such a hot button topic is that people are saying they want people to be admitted to college based on merit and making sure that has nothing to do with your race. But at the same time, when you were born, born into a disadvantaged situation, it's a lot harder to match your merits with other people's merits. So if you... Part so of what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that... A student in Loudoun County, Virginia, that his merit, his or her merit may be a little bit different than a student in Richmond. Well, and I definitely believe so. I think that a lot of people just need to do their research. There are tons of studies like one. I think it's like the three million. I'm not sure if it's three million. It might be one million word gap. 
basically saying that children who are born in economically disadvantaged or linguistically disadvantaged households grow up using and being exposed to three million less words. Oh, yeah. I did read that. I read that study before. So linguistically disadvantaged or economically disadvantaged persons are often black. So I think that, or are a person of color. And so it's a lot harder to do better. Right. It's a lot harder to get, to do well on the SATs, but it's not just about that. It's not, you also have to look at what type of diverse perspective am I bringing to the classroom? I understand what it is to be a black American in the United States. Other people know what it is to be a Latino American. If you are sitting in a classroom filled with white people and you, where are you going to get that perspective? Where are you going to be exposed? Cause you're not seeking it out yourself. Yeah. And part of the study and the analysis of that study that I read also talked about the dinner table. Okay. And how families that don't eat dinner together, they don't have these conversations. So children aren't exposed to certain words from the day because, you know, it might be sitting over eating oodles and noodles and watching <laughs> cartoons. It's a little bit different from a family that actually sits at the table and say, hey, how's your day? Right. And so basically part of her argument was that, well, OK, well, then let's just mark it on socioeconomic status. But my opinion is that there's such a diverse perspective that you are brought that is brought to the table when you are not around people who are just like you well you you know even with the entire merit-based thing like we don't even have a a generic grading system in america no we don't so like my high school a 95 was the lowest a oh wow you know some other high schools a 90 or 91 right so are you gonna say at my school, because my GPA may have been a 3.9 and someone else was a 4.0, like I'm still scoring higher than them everywhere else. So right. I think it's a flawed system. And I guess that's one thing that I can agree with Senator Sanders on about having a uniform system. And so his really wasn't about a grading scale. His was more so about us going to the metric system. I don't want to go to the metric system. We're the only place in the world that has something else other than the metric system. Okay. Nah. Bernie, Listen, I'm not with you on that one. The magic happens when you leave your comfort zone. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not with you on that one. But, so this was just definitely decided. You guys already know the decision by the Supreme Court. What I find interesting is what you said before and how this is not the first time that she's tried to take it to the Supreme Court. Like, 2013 was the first time it reached the court and the court required the lower courts to relook at the case. Basically, and what at every, happened at the lower courts? Basically, at every stage, people have said, Abigail Fisher, you're wrong. She's lost pretty much, like pretty much every court system that she's walked into has ruled against her. So what would she do now? I mean, she's already went to another school and graduated. You know, even if she had won, what would she do? She Get wanted an honorary diploma. She wanted degree? to win this for all of the poor, discriminated against upper middle class white people all over the world. So something... We'd be remiss if we didn't comment on the late Justice Scalia. Right. And his inappropriate, racist, and despicable comments <laughs> from December when they had the hearing on this case. Okay, so here's where I'm going to offer a little bit of perspective that I think a lot of people aren't going to. The, the first half of his statement is actually not his 
quote unquote opinion. So there are things called amicus briefs that are an amicus brief is basically a writing that is coming from the friend of a court of the court. So different people, different lobbyists, groups, they write amicus briefs. He was reading from the amicus brief when he initially started talking about, well, actually, let's let you listen to it first. There are, there are those who contend that it does not benefit African-Americans to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, uh, as opposed to having them go to a less uh, advanced school, a, less, a, a slower track school where they do well. Uh, one, of, one of the briefs uh, uh, pointed out that, uh, that most, of the, most of the black uh, scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. So th- this they court from lesser schools where they do not feel uh, that, they're, uh, that they're being pushed ahead in, in classes that are too, too fast for them. This oh, court, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm just not impressed by the fact that, that the University of Texas may have fewer. Maybe it ought to have fewer. And maybe some, you know, when you take more, the number of blacks, really competent blacks admitted to lesser schools turns out to be less. And, and uh, I don't think it, it, it stands to reason that it's a good thing for the University of Texas to admit as many blacks as possible. I just don't. Okay, so the first part of that, he's saying, okay, according to this brief, does it not behoove? He's basically quoting the mit, the mix match theory, which has been debunked a numerous a number of times, where it's saying like if you send kids who are not prepared to college, then they will not finish. Doesn't matter about their race though. Technically, it doesn't matter about their race, but that's the argument that they're that they're making. Okay. So, but the second half, when he was talking about, like, it seems to me that we need to be sending them to, you know, where basically he talked about, like, the skimming of the best of the best off the top. Oh, when we admit those students who are, you know, the the top of the top, then we're taking them away from their universities. No one should be, if I want to go to a university, I should go to the university of which that I feel like I deserve and the one that I get into. I understand that the beginning was him quoting a brief, but the second half of that was everything that you just said. All those adjectives, distasteful, disrespectful, incredibly racist things that he had to say. And I can't say that I'm surprised. I don't want to speak ill of the man now that he's passed in February, but I mean, I'm going to call a spade a spade. Keep it a bean. (laughs) Okay. I mean, keep it to me. I, I'm gonna be honest with you. If Scalia was right here in front of me, my comments wouldn't change. But it, I just love the part where Texas argues, excuse me, not Texas, the United States argues in opposition to Scalia right after that, that actually minority students admitted to competitive colleges through a race conscious process have higher graduation rates than those at less competitive colleges and universities, according to this 2008 study. So he basically contradicts Scalia and was like, I don't know where you heard that, but uh, it ain't true. I guess my problem with Scalia and, you know, a lot of people, even though they don't have the platform and sometimes they won't verbalize it as Scalia does. But a lot of people from all walks of life, I've even heard people of color say we learned better when the schools were segregated. So I definitely think we should kind of talk about the benefit of desegregated schools and educational systems in America now. 
Well, the schools are more segregated now than they were then, according to to studies. We have some very like integration exists, but the Swan decision, right? The schools are highly segregated. My school that I teach at is highly segregated. Look at the lines. It's really neighborhood and housing segregation that then leads into school segregation. But what about colleges and universities? What about them? Are they as segregated today? No, I think that they are. They're definitely higher proportions of people of color. But I thought it was also interesting going back to Scalia. Even if Scalia had been alive, they still affirmative action still would have stood. The decision was five to three. So to add Scalia's vote on would have made it five four. Yeah, that was interesting to me because I thought. Kagan had to recuse herself. Kagan did recuse herself. So I'm sorry, the original thing was four to three. Yeah. So then it would have been four four. Four four. Which which means they would defer to the lower to court. To the lower court. Which means they still would have died. Exactly. So um you know, last week we talked about fed up. Mm-hmm. How's your sugar challenge going? Okay, so Coop is a snake. Basically, what happened was when we made this bet, I forgot that I had to go to this conference in D.C., this Summer Institute. And when they asked me, so they feed you two meals out of the day, and I was there for about six days. They asked you, do you have any dietary restrictions? But I registered, well, I was admitted like two months ago, and I didn't have any dietary restrictions in. So I put no, and then I got there, and there was all this bread and all this sugar, and it was either eat that, or don't eat for a couple hours. So I definitely lost. It's okay. I got you. McDonald's on deck. <laughs> I don't eat McDonald's, ma'am. Applebee's? I wasn't thinking of a chain, actually. We didn't say you got to pick. Or you just said I feed you lunch. If I go downstairs and make you a sandwich, <laughs> you'd be straight. I think it said treat. Yeah, that's a treat. I was I'm not making you make your own sandwich. I was a I was expecting like a catered meal. See, I think next time you need to explain that. You said lunch. Well, I knew I wasn't going to lose anyway, so. Oh, okay. That's what he says. I don't know what Coop's been eating. But because of the conference, I didn't have a choice. She lost like the first day. No, I didn't lose the first day. The first day I was really, really good. and But then I was super hungry because there was so much bread. There were so many breaded products and so many sweets. But the second day, I definitely lost. <laughs> I, I can admit that like it's been extremely hard. Like I found myself getting weak. You know, I every time I it, it's almost like the sugar's been talking to me. No. Like I went in the grocery store and and the little, little Hawaiian punch was like, "You really want me?" Really <laughs> <laughs> it's been so hard. But I did get on the scale and I lost like four pounds in the oh, week. Oh, wow. So, Look at us setting up solutions. Yeah. Oh, so you still, are you still on the sugar, no sugar diet? Yeah, I said 10 days. Okay. So let's see how it goes. Yeah. You got to report back out to us. Uh, you know, since some people, you know, boss. I didn't have a choice. I wasn't going to starve myself. You always have a choice. That's not healthy. That's privilege. <laughs> <laughs> so... Our question of the week. You know, we're all about creating solutions here at Ain't No Free Lunch. Yup. <laughs> we're wondering what will it take for us, people of color, that's what I mean by us, to get to a point where... No, no, not just people of color, women as well. People of color are women. 
women are people of color. I'm a man of color. So <clears throat> what will it take for white women and all people of color to get to a point where affirmative action is no longer needed? Am I supposed to chew on this for a while? I mean, you can chew on it. I have a solution if I can throw it out there. I'm calling on white men. Hello. How are you? Hopefully you've enjoyed the show so far. To start engaging in anti active anti-racist behavior. So like in a perfect example of that is my homeboy, Matt McGorry. I follow him on Instagram and Twitter. He has no idea who I am. <laughs> but he is the perfect example. Well, not the perfect example. Everybody falters here and there of what it means to be anti-racist. It, I need people to continue to first be conscious of what their actions are and how they impact other people. I need you to understand that it's not the responsibility of people of color to educate you. Go out there and educate yourself. Figure out what it is. If you don't like affirmative action, what are people's main arguments of it and why do they feel like this is necessary? What actions can you give to make sure that there's an equal playing field? For people of color, I know it's not our always our job, quote unquote, bunny ears around that, to to fix society that a society that we didn't break. But at the same time, continue to educate yourself on what affirmative action is why people think it's necessary and how we can go about leveling the playing field for ourselves. And I hate to put more work on us because I feel like we're always the ones that are required to solve problems that we didn't create. But at the same time, I think there's something really powerful in not allowing yourself to be a victim of a system by seeking out solutions and actively working towards progress. Try to see what you can do to have race-neutral policies be adopted by universities that admit more people of color. Find out different systems other than just affirmative action. I'm totally here for affirmative action, but I feel like we don't want the pendulum to swing backwards. We know eventually it'll get struck down. Yeah. So what can we do it's to not make if, sure... but when. Right. What can we do that once it is taken down, once it is stricken down, that we make sure the pendulum doesn't swing the wrong way and then we see ourselves on the outside of these universities all over well, again. I can tell you this, that if you go out there and vote for Jill Stein and somehow allow mm-hmm. Donald J. Trump to be our next president. Do you see how he's shooting shots? Yep, shooting them big shots too. I didn't let anybody do anything. Hillary didn't earn my vote. So if not that's yet. not no, my responsibility. Not yet. not yet. So don't put it on me. If I vote for Jill Stein, that's Hillary's fault, not mine. So Jill Stein's earning your vote. So... <laughs> I'm still, to be fairly honest, I'm still very much so undecided between Dr. Jill Stein and Hillary Clinton. But a Donald Trump's presidency will strike down. So tell people not to vote for Donald Trump, not for Jill Stein. Really, really quickly. A vote for Jill Stein is a vote for Donald Trump. No, it is not. If I am responsible for putting Donald Trump in office, then so is Hillary Clinton for doing a terrible job. What's she done a terrible job at? Earning my vote. Thus far, we're working on it. Earning my vote. So if Donald Trump goes into office, Hillary, here's looking at you. It's not my fault. I'm with her. You're not scaring me. Hashtag, I ain't scared, though. I'm about to tweet that, too. That was fire. (laughs) And I'm going to add her. (laughs) She creates her own hashtags. And tweet them, and nobody picks them up. Guys, you got to support. Nobody picks them up. (laughs) A hashtag of one. (laughs) 
Speaking of support, though, if you like what you hear, please, please, please go find us on iTunes or on your podcast app and subscribe. Download SoundCloud if you have an Android. Listen. We're also comment, on Stitcher. Listen to us on Stitcher. I think we're on Google Play. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Find us somewhere, review us, share us with your friends. We can only start this revolution if you guys are are helping us out. It's a revolution. Oh my goodness. All right, so Coop, did you, have you been fed today? Did you eat? You know. Did we find solutions? Someone else got fed a little bit of humble pie in the past week. Her name was Abby Fisher. Uh-oh. I think she learned a lesson that we learned a long time ago, but ain't no free lunch. All right, guys. See you next week. This episode was brought to you by Virginia Family Services. Their family cares for yours.